vulnerability. Could it be a writer's greatest strength? How fragile we all are. And it's the thing that most of us fear most revealing. And yet it's our greatest source of power and inspiration. That's poet Philip Schultz. We talk with him about his memoir slash how-to book, Comforts of the Abyss, The Art of Persona Writing. Then, Paraquat and Parkinson's disease. Newly revealed documents show that the maker of a common herbicide knew decades ago about the link. We really have never had any of this information. It, it was all contained in these internal corporate documents that have not been made public prior to our stories last week. So it really was enlightening <laughs> and alarming uh, to see what this company knew when they knew it and how they responded, not by warning people again, but by trying to protect their profits and protect the sales of this chemical. We catch up with former Writer's Voice guest, Carrie Gillum, about her blockbuster scoop on the chemical company Syngenta. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on the station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. Throughout his long career as a poet, Philip Schultz has been battling a demon. It comes to him in the image of a black bird who perches on his shoulder, telling him how unworthy he is. Sound familiar? Most of us have experienced that dark voice, which Schultz calls his shitbird. It especially afflicts writers. But Schultz found a way around that dark voice. He calls it persona writing a method he developed and teaches at the school he founded, the Writer's Studio. Persona writing borrows the voice and temperament of other writers, maybe Ernest Hemingway or Elizabeth Bishop, someone who can offer a writer a way of creating enough distance so that truth and intimacy can emerge. Now he talks about that method in his book, Comforts of the Abyss, The Art of Persona Writing. Philip Schultz is the author of numerous poetry collections, among them Like Wings, The Pulitzer Prize-winning Failure, The God of Loneliness, and Luxury. He's been a guest before on Writer's Voice in 2010 and 2018. Philip Schultz, welcome back to Writer's Voice. It's a pleasure to be here. This is just such a wonderful and profound book, Comforts of the Abyss, The Art of Persona Writing. Um, it's both a memoir and a kind of guide, very powerfully written, I would say. But I want to focus first on the title, Comforts of the Abyss. This juxtaposes two words that we don't usually think of as belonging together, comfort and abyss. Well, it, it comes from a quote um, from E.M. Sion, the Romanian philosopher, and I would have to find it, but uh, 
the idea is that sometimes you look for that you could turn the negative which we all carry around in us and which we here in the, in the school call the shitbird into inspiration how do you take all the stuff that we're up against every time you sit down to write there's 101 reasons not to go there to deal with whatever you're asking yourself to deal with and there's usually only one reason to continue. And that one reason is a very positive one. You're inspired. You feel you have something to say. You have some degree of confidence. Then there's all those other reasons that go through your head not to do it. And in order to overcome all that negativity, you have to find comfort. You have to find inspiration. And that's what Siaran was created a whole philosophy about. And that's why I took that as a um, as a title, because in my school, the writer studio, that basically is is what you're doing, what we're doing. The book is really a way for the writer to delve into their own contradictions. You mentioned the shitbird. Tell us more about what that is. Well, you know, it was interesting because I had a friend a wonderful, young, talented black man who I met in graduate school at at Iowa, the University of Iowa workshop, who everyone looked up to and admired. And he was extremely gifted and the school always would show him off, his publications, his brilliance. He was also a jazz musician. And we became friends um, on my insistence. And I found him inspiring. And he had a terrible uh, background. I mean, he, he was told that he was black at a young age, seven or eight. His mother was white. He thought he was. He was very fair. And she explained that his white father had discovered that he wasn't his biological son and wanted him out of the house. And she was in a position where either she and her two other white children would have to leave or put him in a foster home. And they put him in a foster home, a series of them, and a lot of them abusive and not very good. And he finally found a um, a black piano teacher to mother him. And um, she taught him piano, and he became great at it and accomplished. He was a brilliant young man. And our relationship was... Um, he was educating me. <laughs> he basically, he's the one who introduced me to Ciaran, E-M-Ciaran, C-I-O-R-A-N, and had me read this book, The Temptation to Exist, which had changed his life and it changed mine. The title comes from that book. And he told me that every time he sat down to write, a black bird would perch on his shoulder and come up with all these reasons not to write telling him, whispering in his ear, that basically anything he would say would be worthless because he was worthless. And I asked him what he called that blackbird, and he said, my shitbird. This was back in early 70s. And uh, I was stunned by that. He killed himself at the age of 27. His shitbird was impossible to overcome. And when I taught, I taught in college for many years. And whenever I taught, I tried to 
continue this argument I had with him, with my students, or when they were afraid to write. And I eventually started a school based on helping people discover and overcome their shitbirds. And of course, I've had a lifelong battle with my own. And I'm going through it right now. Really? Yes, I I wrote a poem recently called My Mistakes, how they follow me down the beach arguing with me and arguing with one another, one wanting to be more important than the other and constantly reminding me of their presence. And um, usually it means that there's some kind of excitement going on and I'm trying to burst through and write poetry. So that's where the shit word comes from. And that connection between the doubting voice, the voice that tells you you're not worth anything, and inspiration, creative inspiration, is actually quite direct then. And actually, before we go any further, the other word is persona, because I think it's persona is a word that often is meant to talk about masks or disguises, something we take on that isn't our true self. But you use this concept of the persona to excavate the true self. So make that connection for us. Yes, and I should add, his name was Ralph Dickey. He's a, he's a wonderful poet. And Ralph would also say that when he would sit down to write, he would have the blackbird on one shoulder and he would have my voice on the other. And he would want to listen to me encouraging him, telling him how brilliant he was and how he had every reason to write and how desperate so many of us were to have this kind of brilliance out there. And it was a duel. And he said that sometimes when he wrote, he would use Neruda, he would use uh, Rilke, he would use... Isaac Babel, he would use all these voices to try to overcome the voice of the shitbird. And I wasn't even conscious of it when I began teaching at Kalamazoo College or even in grad school. Students would write an autobiographical eye, the same eye they used in their diaries, the same eye they used in their letters. They didn't have email then. And it was flat and there was no distance to write a poem or a story. And I told them to try, you know, Salinger or try Huck Finn or try Whitman. Someone with flavor. Uh, And also Bishop was my favorite poet and uh, Elizabeth Bishop. And when they started imitating the uh, voice and approach of the personality of these other writers, suddenly they were connecting emotionally connecting to their work and writing. And over a period of time, I understood that this worked. And what Ralph was telling me about using my voice to try to inspire him, I turned into a philosophy of writing, persona writing. In fact, in writing this book, I love Hemingway's A Movable Feast, which I think is an incredible memoir and the story of all the writers who influenced him and the artists and writers that he knew in Paris as a young man. And without any doubt, that approach, that idea, that voice with others helped me write this. And yet you say often enough, though, I'm going to quote you now, Philip Schultz in this book, Comforts of the Abyss, 
Often enough, though, when using a persona in my work, I seem to experience a feeling of having been displaced without my permission by a facsimile of myself I can't quite recognize, a not unfamiliar, troubling sense of feeling lost and inconclusive, the sense that perhaps there is no real me. So reconcile that with what you just said to us before. I think all the more reason for me to consciously apply a persona, because I'm also describing there how I often feel about my own voice, that at times I feel a kind of absence, you know, and when when I would, let's say, be excited by Cesar Vallejo or Neruda or somebody like that, I envied that attitude. I'd envy that confidence. It wasn't what I was feeling. And then I found myself applying it. What I'm saying there is that that feeling is one I have to attempt to overcome, that when I use this other voice that's replaced me, my shitbird is telling me that I have nothing to say. And by overcoming that or attempting to overcome that, the persona helps. You know, I was thinking about this whole concept of voice, because developing a voice as a writer, and I can't say that I'm the greatest writer in the world, but I have seen the development of my voice over the decades. I I like to think of it as a simple truth, you know, kind of peeling away the decorations that have accrued themselves to my shell. But it's it's a delicate balance. So the kind of the devil is is in the details. You talk about the most precious thing that a writer has, the most exquisite and excruciating thing, is our vulnerability. And I, I want you to talk about that. But also, I guess what I'm I'm getting at is that how do we express our vulnerability without getting lost in it? You're asking great questions. Boy, you've gone right to the heart of the book and even this this teaching method. What I tried to say before, I don't know how well I said it, but you the quote that you gave is actually about that. The very thing we fear, which is how vulnerable we are, how fragile. You know, Joan Didion talks about what she calls her fierce fragility. It's such a remarkable statement. It, you know, when you read her and when you look at her, you know exactly what she's talking about. There's this fierceness and there's this heartbreaking fragility. She looks like she a big gust of wind could blow her apart. And yet no one is tougher. She created a persona that uses one to get at the other one. because how fragile we all are. And it's the thing that most of us fear most revealing. And yet it's our greatest source of power and inspiration. So when I talk about how I fear when I'm writing being replaced, it's a fear of actually connecting to the most vulnerable part of myself, the part that is very fearful and extremely anxious, is the the dyslexic, the boy who couldn't learn how to read and kept failing and getting kicked out of schools and feeling worthless. There was a reason for my attraction to my friend. 
um, we had a lot in common. <laughs> and in helping him, I was trying to help myself. The very thing we're most afraid of revealing. I have in my school, in my classes, my master class, we have a new technique, and it's um, this using a journal and using a persona to write it. It's based on Cheever's journals, Virginia Woolf's journals, where they felt in their journals they could say anything and because of, there was the illusion of privacy. It was for their ears only, their eyes only. And then when they would write, they would go back to the journal and they would take the strongest, most poignant parts and turn it into fiction. They felt they could be vulnerable in a journal because it was private, even though in Cheever's case, the best-selling book he ever had was his journals, <laughs> which he was fine about publishing. <laughs> Kafka wrote this book to his father, which is his most moving and personal book because he didn't think it would ever be published, in which he's, the lawyer is prosecuting his father. He's putting his father, who is abusive and totally neglectful, on a witness stand. And it was published. He thought it would never be published. He didn't want it to be. He gave it to his mother to give to his father, and he died. His mother, of course, never gave it to the father. Max Broad, his, his literary executive, published it. When we write a journal, we see it as we can get away with murder. We can say anything about ourselves. We can reveal who we are. And when you take a persona, it gives you another mask. It gives you a, a mask. The idea of a mask, God, my mind is slipping. Who, who said that famous comment? I'm, I'm slipping on this name right now. Oscar Wilde? Yes, yes. You give somebody a mask and they'll tell you the truth. If they feel that they have some distance between the listener and themselves, they can come clean. I wanted to ask you about that distance, because this is one of the things, one of the things that you say in this book, Comforts of the Abyss, Philip Schultz, is that the narrator, and we're talking, let's say, about fiction now, or even poetry, that's fine, too, um, but the narrator is himself or herself a persona, an important persona. And I wanted to explore that a little bit. Let, let's say, for example, in a memoir, well, that's kind of obvious then. The narrator is the writer themselves, and they have a certain persona. But do they necessarily have to be delving into who they are, even in memoir, what about the distance that in some way you have to have, you've, you've referred to it before, that you have to have between yourself and what you're writing? The, the putting on um, the mask of someone else's voice or personality and have, turning that into a narrator who, let's say, is looking at your younger self or looking at a character. That extra distance provides a degree of objectivity it's a protection. It makes, it abstracts in a way that the vulnerability and it allows you to discuss it and connect to it. How does it do it when you're taking on the persona of another writer? I, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was entranced by Gertrude Stein and I 
I wrote, you know, I wrote a piece in the voice of Gertrude Stein, but it was it was an exercise. But I, I don't see a way that it actually helped me elucidate my own voice. So this is some of the contradiction. I mean, the distance is important. How do you use the distance in a way that is intimate enough with who you really are? Well, the degree of objectivity allows you, let's say, to, to look at yourself a few moments ago or many years ago with some degree of sympathy. Sometimes we don't look at ourselves with any degree of sympathy. When I first started uh, to write and um, wanted to write, and I was using an autobiographical eye, everything was very flat. The novels I wrote were, were flat, but the poetry, for some reason, I was using personas without even knowing it. I was always being excited by some writer and using their attitude, using their personality. And I was writing about my feelings, writing about what I was going through. And in doing it, I was almost rejoicing in even the pain of, let's say, a broken relationship. I had wrote a successful poem called Like Wings, which was the title of my first book. It was an, about an excruciating end to a relationship that went on a very long time. But by using, um, I was influenced by Elizabeth Bishop and her love poems, One Art and others. And by looking at what had happened and myself in it, I felt a degree of sympathy for the loss. Instead of blaming myself, I, I dealt connected to the pain, which is pure vulnerability. That distance that allowed me to get at a level of pain that I couldn't get at otherwise. That makes sense. And in fact, that's one of the poems that I was hoping you would read for us. The Like Wings? Yes. And it, we should tell our listeners that this is the title poem to your first book of poems, and it's your most famous poem. Yes, it, it was in the New Yorker. And okay, here's the irony. It took four and a half years for me to write this poem. <laughs> And it was hard to get at the level of pain that I was suffering. There was an awful lot of guilt that this was all my fault or anger that this was all her fault. And finally, I was able to find a persona that only wanted to deal with how much I loved her. And that gave me the distance to write the poem, Like Wings. Last night I dreamed I was the first man to love a woman and woke shaking and went out to watch the faded rag of the sky burn into dawn. I am tired of the river before feeling, the joy we must carve from shadow, tired of my road-thick tongue. I cannot hand you my breath or wrap the horizon around your wrists and be forgiven. I cannot rub the dry wood of my ribs to fire and sleep. The edge of sleep is in sleep. I go room to room, tying my feelings into knots. The space we filled now fills me. The light and dark won't mix. I cannot leave myself like a house frozen in the background. I am this body and the weather all year round. I think of the light that opened over you our first morning, 
how the glass in my lungs turned to sound. And I saw you, woman and child, and couldn't breathe for love. Fear is the edge that is the risk that is loving. It stinks of blood, draws sharks. The nights you waltz naked round our bed, myself holding the chair I'd painted blue again, the cats flowing in the wings of your good yellow hair. There is much men don't know about women, how your hands work the air to water, the seed to life, why the salt at the tips of your breasts glows and tastes a mollusk. There are hours when the future gives up all hope and stops in the middle of busy streets and doesn't care. But think of the distance we have come, the hands which have wound us. There will be others. I have read of ancient people who held razors to their doctor's throat as he operated, as if love could have such balance like wings. One night I followed your tracks through deep snow and stood in an old schoolhouse watching the new sun come red and shimmer over the opening fields. The world white and flat and the light I had known all my life burned in my head like a fist of rags. How I couldn't remember what we feared we'd taken or left. My arms opened to your shape. How I couldn't lift out of my body, my mouth frozen around the sound of your name. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with poet Philip Schultz about Comforts of the Abyss, the Art of Persona Writing. And it's such a beautiful poem, and, and as you were reading it, I guess I understood that when you could gain the distance, then it's the love that remained. It's like a, a pan or, or even a eulogy to love. I mean, a eulogy in, in, in a positive way, the way we eulogize people who are precious to us. That's a beautiful way of putting it. In all those drafts, over all those years, I didn't want to go anywhere near the part of me that felt totally abandoned and hopeless. I mean, I really couldn't imagine going on alone. And there was the feeling that there would be no one else. And we had been together during, you know, I met her when, what was I, 23? And we had begin, been together until I was almost 30, from, from San Francisco to Iowa to Kalamazoo. You know, another way of saying all of this is that the very thing that allows us to write and that is so precious and delicate is our sensitivity. But the very thing is also is what causes hurts so much hurt and pain. If we're actually connected to what we're feeling and many people aren't and most writers have to write to discover what they're really feeling. But the very sensitivity that allows us to write if you can go there, is done at some cost. And it's just like revealing, unwrapping the sensitivity, which we protect with layers, which we necessarily have to protect in order to get through life, in order to get through the day. And what I revealed over all that time is the sensitivity, how much she meant to me and what I was losing. And there are images here. I used a lot of Neruda's voice. 
because he was very imagistic. And I was, I see how many images I used here. I, I was taking away all my protections. I was rendering myself completely naked. And um, the response was that at the time, they, they, the, the editor, Howard Moss, said that they got more letters there than they had before. And everything from marriage proposals. Here, I, the part of me that felt crippled and worthless by, by revealing that, this huge response of feeling uh, people identifying with what I was saying, people admiring it. Isn't that shocking? When you think what you fear is that when you reveal that, the opposite is going to happen. And that happens so often, but it's it's not only that that you have in that poem. There's really also the honoring of this person, the honoring of this relationship. You know, it's, it's not, oh, well, me, I'm such a terrible person. Not at all. It's just a simple acknowledgement. And I, and I think it really does beautifully express how distance allows the revelation. You know, you just mentioned the word sensitivity. You have an incredible stories. I mean, you're such a raconteur in this book of your, you know, relationships, your friendships with Norman Mailer, with Philip Roth, you know, how much Hemingway influenced you. Those are all very much what I think of as guy fiction. Not that it's not great fiction, but it is precisely that macho quality, you know, you say they saw their sensitivity as unmanly, and and you are so different. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how these macho men <laughs> were able to, in fact, reveal the truth at the depths of the human being. You, you know, Francesca, our conversations are always wonderful. You have insight on a level that is quite remarkable. It, it is unique. I mean, you get to the heart of things. It's so, you know, it's it's quite amazing, actually. Um, yes. You know, I, I grew up as a street kid. You, you had a bicycle and someone would come by and they would slap you. And if you didn't slap them back, they'd take your bicycle. This was a tough, mean immigrant neighborhood, and it was kill or be killed, and you, you know, you fought. Or you didn't go outside. You had to. It was a tough, mean world. So when I grew up and I would relate to the macho in Hemingway or in Mailer or whatever, and when I met Mailer, we hit it off immediately. I didn't know why. And I, we started, you know, boxing and all doing all of that. And I liked it. It was what I did as a kid. It made sense. And, you know, I had other things in common with Roth, a certain kind of sense of humor and irony and Jewish chutzpah or whatever. And um, I didn't know what was happening. I wasn't trying to be friends with any of them. It just happened. Um, in fact, I wasn't all that impressed with Mailer when I met him, and I hadn't read him. But we, we lived in Provincetown, and we, he was around in a bar, and we got along, and we became friends. What I understood over time is really about myself. And what I understood 
that, that yes, Mailer liked the part of me that he did all these, the reckless, fearless part, he called. But what I also understood is that the poet in him, the sensitive Jewish kid from Brooklyn, um, and I knew his mother, so I knew his makeup. <laughs> She'd come over and visit when I was staying in his place while I looked for an apartment in New York. He saw in me, he identified with me, the sensitive kid, the poet in me, the poet in him needed companionship. And I realized that was true. In, um I was vulnerable and sensitive, and I couldn't hide it. You know, I could cry in a dime. I reacted emotionally, overreacted to almost everything. And there were the other, the other things that they could uh, identify with, but there was that that they were identifying with too. And it, you know, Mailer had all these different wives. He once called me up when I was at Yado and asked me. He told he told his wife that his new girlfriend was my girlfriend, and that it wasn't him who was having an affair and that she might call me. And I said, no, I, I wouldn't do it because I liked her and I wasn't going to lie to her. He wanted you to say it was your girlfriend. Yes. I was staying at his place and she now was staying at his place. And he wanted me to tell his wife, Carol, that I was, that she was staying with me and that I was staying there with him. And I told him, no, I was at Yado. And the next time he called me to make a joke out of it, he, he, he asked for Rabbi Schultz. And um, what I came to understand is that this fragile, vulnerable, sensitive part of me, which I couldn't hide as hard as I tried under the street kit, which expressed itself in my poetry, is what they were attracted to in themselves. And yet so many writers that I knew went from one relationship to another and they had whatever the relationship with their own sensitivity was, it was difficult. It wasn't easily expressed in their work. The violence and all the other stuff they could express. Certainly, you know, Hemingway went, how many wives did he have? And he drank himself to death and he blew his brains out. And yet what writer is more sensitive and vulnerable in his work it's why you cry your way through a farewell to arms and it's why that's the real reason his work is so attractive because of all the pain in it so i wanted to be more open and and came to understand in writing this book that this was the case only in writing this book did i come to understand that that you that you understood the part of me that didn't want to be a poet, that wanted to be a fiction writer, or that wanted to make money from my work, and that wanted to be like these other writers I admired, didn't like the poet. In fact, the poet in me and the fiction writers were always at war. And for some reason, the poet was successful and the fiction writer wasn't, and the fiction writer hated the poet in me. You didn't write poetry for 15 years. You cut off all relationships with the poets that you knew. I mean, that is so extreme. I, I was shocked when I read that. Well, it's a craziness. Um, the more successful my poetry became, the more I resented it. Nothing was worse than being my editor at this time. The, the editors would take on my poetry and love it. And then I would give them a terrible novel. 
And of course, they would reject it. And I wouldn't forgive them. (laughs) And so why? Why do you think you couldn't write good fiction, but you could write such wonderful poetry? The answer is a very simple one. I mean, I was using personas in my in my poetry, and that allowed me to deal with the very sensitivity and fragility that I'm talking about, where in the fiction, I was copying the more macho stories, and there was a, an autobiographical eye with no distance and therefore no believable persona, no narrator. And it took me forever to understand that. So now talking about the narrator, the voice of the narrator, you say, is its own important story. And you have an amazing example of this in the book. Um, When you talk about your poem, Greed, we've had you read the later version of this poem, well, years ago when you came on the show, I think the first time, we'll have you read it again today. But I'd like you to also read the first version of it, because I think more than anything else, it really does show what you're talking about when you're saying a poem that really doesn't have a persona versus one that does. So the first version is on page 138, and then the second one starts on that and goes to 139. Okay, so the the, the, the first version starts on the top of page 138? Okay, it doesn't have a persona, right? <clears throat> A man this morning hailing a cab told his cell phone that he was too busy to enjoy his new house in Nantucket. Everyone thinks because I'm a banker, I think greed is good. Each day now in my ocean town waiting for work, more men stand staring into the tedium of the sky over the railroad station. Because it's thought the Hispanics will work for less, they get chosen first. The whites and blacks look dazed as if they don't understand why they're despised. My town depends on real estate, tourism, and construction. And you want me to now read the... the, Yeah, exactly. Now, it took you five years, I believe, to arrive at the... I'm not sure if I'm right about that, but it went through many different iterations and and now read the second one. We have to say this is a poem that's based in the town that you live in, and I live in as well, East Hampton, New York. And it is a poem about somebody who you knew and, and um, you really came to care very much about. And I'm using uh, Walker Percy from a poem, uh, The Moviegoer, uh, a narrator I love, who looks at things, you know, with a degree of sympathy. Um, would agree of trying to understand, which makes sometimes all that, that distance makes all the difference. Greed. My ocean town struggles to pick up leaves, offer summer school, and keep our library open. Every day now, more men stand at the railroad station waiting to be chosen for work. Because it's thought the Hispanics will work for less, they get picked first, while the whites and blacks avoid each other's eyes. Our handyman, Santos, who expects only what his hands earn, is proud of his half acre in Guatemala, where he plans to retire. His desire to proceed with dignity is admirable, but he knows that now no one retires. Everyone works harder. My father imagined a life more satisfying than the one he managed to lead. 
He didn't see himself as uneducated, thwarted, or bitter, but soon to be rich. Being rich was his right, he believed. Happiness, I used to think, was a necessary illusion. Now I think it's just precious moments of relief, like dreams of Guatemala. Yeah, and it's it's really a beautiful illustration of the evolution of something from a very almost notes-to-yourself place to a, a finished poem. You know, finally, you refer uh, a lot in the book to Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and as listeners to the show may have picked up, it's a book that has in- incredible importance for me in my life. I wonder why is the work so important for you and what's the connection that it has to the theme of this book, this wonderful book, Comforts of the Abyss? Looking for that epigraph I use, um, success like happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. In a way, that's a a great definition of the persona. You find a persona that allows you to feel compassion for others, and the very act of doing that provides the very thing that allowed people in Auschwitz or terrible places to survive, and that's they find something that makes them their lives feel meaningful. They're looking for meaning. And compassion, I mean, when you see people who rescue animals or help other people, there's a kind of satisfaction that they feel that's enviable. They're, it renders them and their lives meaningful. Teachers have that. And um, what you're doing is you're helping writers, and it's very meaningful. The people who didn't survive in concentration camps couldn't see, only could deal with the pain, and they couldn't render their lives meaningful. When you, even if it's with yourself, a persona allows you to look at yourself with a degree of sympathy and understanding, and that changes everything. That itself is a form of distance. You're looking at yourself and you're understanding yourself. I probably blame myself for that, the loss of that relationship. I did blame myself. And by writing, having that persona and like wings, I could look at the two of us as it's no one's fault. We, we gave ourselves an enormous amount that allowed ourselves to survive after all over all those years. And it ended. But there was much to celebrate about what, what we had created. It took me a long time to evolve to the place where I could see that. And my good poems all do that. I could never do it in my fiction. I was too involved in wanting to be successful. (laughs) But in the poems, I assumed I was living outside of the realm of success. And for some reason, that allowed me to be successful. And that's exactly what Frankel is talking about. Success isn't something you try to create for yourself. It's something that ensues out of because of something else. I wanted to write something that was true of our relationship. And the success that followed that was a reward, but it came of its own. 
wasn't sought after. Well, that is a beautiful place to end. Philip Schultz, it's really been a privilege to talk with you. This is a wonderful book. And a book, I have to say, there were a couple of times when I really had to laugh out loud. You have amazing stories in it and also a whole lot of wisdom. Um, Comforts of the Abyss, The Art of Persona Writing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Poet Philip Schultz. Go to writersvoice.net to read some of his wonderful poems. You can also hear our other interviews with him. Next up, we switch gears to talk about the pesticide paraquat and the Parkinson's epidemic. We talk with a reporter who broke the story about how the company hid the connection for decades. Stay tuned after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Parkinson's disease is a global epidemic. Many researchers think the cause behind the epidemic lies in the more than 80,000 chemicals that industry exposes us to every year. One of those chemicals is the herbicide paraquat. It's been around for decades, since the 1970s, and it's linked to Parkinson's. The company that makes it, Syngenta, denies the link. But my guest, journalist and author Carrie Gillum, recently got hold of secret company documents that prove Syngenta knew about the link from the beginning. Carrie Gillum is the managing editor of The New Lead, a new journalism initiative begun by the Environmental Working Group. She's been on Writer's Voice before to talk about her books, The Monsanto Papers and Whitewash. You and your co-writer, Alia Utova, have published uh, two pieces in The Guardian and at The New Lead about the pesticide paraquat. So just briefly, tell us what is paraquat used for? How common is its use? Just tell us a bit about it. Sure. Paraquat is a a pretty widely used uh, weed killer. It's used by farmers. It's a restricted use pesticide, which means that the EPA does not allow it to be sold to consumers. You can't spray it around your your lawn and garden, but it's used by professionals who are trained in application of pesticides, which includes farmers. It's used on about 15 million acres of farmland on a whole array of different types of crops. It's even uh, sprayed from the sky, you know, airplanes. Uh, that spray over fields. And uh, it's notoriously been known to be very acutely dangerous. Uh, A few sips of it, a few drops in your mouth accidentally will kill a person within a few days. Some people have used it for suicide. So there is a cross and skull bones on the label. But our stories recently have focused on the fact that there are decades of scientific studies that show that this chemical can cause Parkinson's disease and that the companies involved in selling it were aware of all of this science basically back in the 1950s and 60s and really didn't tell anybody about that and just kept selling it and and still sell it. We, uh, I think about a year or so ago, interviewed one of the lead people in the American, I'm not sure I have the name right, American Parkinson's you know, association. And he told us, and you also say in these articles, that Parkinson's is actually an epidemic. Do you think that uh, paraquat, which is so widely used, might be implicated in that? 
Well, definitely the experts in uh, neurology and in the study of Parkinson's and the study of pesticides do say that there is a very uh, well-demonstrated link between paraquat exposure and Parkinson's disease. Now, there are other causes of Parkinson's that have been studied and established, but paraquat is one uh, very high up there uh, where the associations are very strong. Use of paraquat has surged, really. We talk about that in the story over recent years for many different reasons, uh, but Parkinson's has also um, surged in the population and it's it's doubled essentially over the last 20, 25 years and is expected, the number of people impacted is expected to double again over the next 20 years. Uh, so people do call it a, a epidemic really, um, a fast rising neurological disease. It's an incurable brain disease and it's just a horrible thing for people to have to suffer through. And one of the farmers uh, suffering through this is one that you talk about in one of these articles. Um, that is Ron Niebrugge. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, yeah, we did profile a few farmers, um, and he's one of them who had used Paraquat for years and years. And, you know, he grew up on a family farm and and his you know father used it and he used it and never thought anything about it. And uh, then he was diagnosed with Parkinson's at a pretty young age. And, you know, this man who once was very fit and active and uh, loved to ride horses and go dancing and, and that sort of thing, you know, now is barely able to walk across a room. And uh, it really has debilitated him and restricted his life. And uh, it's just it's it's very tragic, progressive disease, essentially the dopamine producing cells, neuron cells in the brain um, die off and are impacted. And when your brain can't produce dopamine and communicate, then your brain can't communicate to the rest of the body, you, you lose your motor skills. And people with Parkinson's can, can suffer dementia, they can eventually lose their ability to, you know, even to eat and to speak normally. And, uh, you know, it's just a horrible, horrible disease. Now he is suing the company that makes Paraquat, that's Syngenta, a Swiss company, and he's also suing Chevron. So tell us a little bit about Syngenta and Chevron with Chevron's involvement here. Yeah, Syngenta is the the successor company uh, to a number of different corporate entities, but it essentially is the company that introduced Paraquat to the world many years ago and started started selling it in the 1960s. And Chevron was the primary distributor back then for the first 20 years or so of the life of this chemical in the marketplace. And Chevron no longer sells it. They stopped doing that in 1986. It's interesting that in 1985, we see in these internal documents that I was able to obtain that in 1985, very high level Chevron officials writing to each other and one commenting to the other uh, that this Parkinson's connection could very well be like asbestos and how we now know that asbestos is such a horrible thing for human health. And basically, talking about the legacy that they might leave if they kept selling this chemical, leaving a legacy of Parkinson's disease. So, and that was back in 1985. And then, as I said, Chevron did exit uh, the marketplace and stopped selling it in 1986. But Syngenta kept right on selling it. And you see in these internal documents that I was able to obtain how they grew increasingly worried about the science establishing a connection to Parkinson's, but decided that they would 
instead of you know reducing sales or taking it off the market or putting a warning label on, they decided they would start a, an influencing campaign basically to uh, convince people to ignore the science that showed that it was connected to Parkinson's. They also feared legal liability, not just leaving a legacy of disease, but actual legal liability for long-term chronic effects of paraquat as long ago as 1975. And and you point out in the articles that they actually knew since the 1950s before they even brought it to market. Is that right, that there was a link between Parkinson's and paraquat? Well, in the 50s, yeah, they they were looking at the chemical family, essentially, that paraquat belongs to and saw central nervous system disorders and impacts there, which is a hallmark of Parkinson's. And you see then over time into the 60s and through the 60s and then into the 70s, it's like the, the evidence just kept building and building and building with um, studies on mice and rats and other animals and then uh, epidemiology studies looking at human populations. Uh, the weight of evidence showing that this was connected to Parkinson's just grew and grew and grew. And we really have never had any of this information. It, it was all contained in these internal corporate documents that have not been made public prior to our stories last week. So... It really was enlightening (laughs) and alarming uh, to see what this company knew when they knew it and how they responded, not by warning people again, but by trying to protect their profits and protect the sales of this chemical. So what you're really talking about here is regulatory capture, which uh, in your previous books on Monsanto, I mean, this seems to be following very much according to the Monsanto model, the oil and gas industry model, the cigarette industry model, you know, deny, 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 delay, 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 and distract. Um, Talk about that regulatory capture. I mean, I was interested to see that dozens of countries have actually banned paraquat even Switzerland, uh, the home country of Syngenta, but not the U.S. and not the USDA. So talk about regulatory capture in our country. Yes, regulatory capture. We see that over and over and over again uh, with these these companies. Certainly you see it here with Syngenta and the lobbying organization that represents Syngenta, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, all of these companies Dow DuPont, of course, have, have merged and, and formed Corteva, but CropLife America is the, the lobbying arm for them. And you see their uh, very cozy relationship with the Environmental Protection Agency. There's an interesting little vignette, I guess, if you will, that comes out of these internal corporate documents with Paraquat. You can see that um, at one point they were very concerned the EPA was going to form a scientific advisory panel And one of the scientists that had been nominated to serve on that panel was someone who had been doing quite a lot of work on Paraquat and and very vocal about the establishment of the Parkinson's causation, causation to Parkinson's. And this woman scientist, you know, the EPA was considering putting her on their advisory panel and Syngenta did not want her to be. And you see, they say internally, it would be a real disaster for our projects uh, to have her on that panel but they decide they can't publicly criticize her or try to keep her off the panel. So they go to CropLife and they tell this gentleman named Ray McAllister at CropLife that they want him to write a letter. 
and they want him to make all these disparaging remarks about this woman and just try to discredit her work um, as a scientist. But they say very clearly in these emails, they don't want it to come back to Syngenta. They don't want anybody to know they're behind it. And they uh, tell Ray McAllister not to put it in a public docket, you know, and try to basically keep this secret from any public knowledge. So it's those kinds of tactics, um, you know, and then we just see it play out in many, many different ways. Um, there currently are five EPA whistleblowers who have come forward. These are all scientists at the EPA who have come forward uh, and reported to Congress that they are being pressured by EPA top brass management at EPA to alter scientific research within the agency to hide the human health harms associated with these chemicals. So it certainly is not restricted to Paraquat. It wasn't just about glyphosate or Monsanto. It's not one company or one chemical. It is just rampant corruption and collusion that uh, goes through our entire Environmental Protection Agency. Carrie Gillum, thank you so much for talking with us about this very important issue, the link between Parkinson's and Paraquat. We will link to your articles in the new lead, where they are also accompanied by links to the actual documents that underlie the story. Thanks again. Thank you. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Listen again for free, read book excerpts, and sign up for the podcast at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. 